Thank you, Lucy. There's, um, there's sermon outlines up the back if you would like to um, have a look at those. Also, please make sure you get access to a Bible. If you haven't got one on your phone, then there are some Bibles in the foyer there and you can grab a hold of that. Feel free to get up. No one's going to stare at you um, if you want to go up and, and grab one. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, our loving Father, as we come to uh, this magnificent letter in the New Testament, and as we explore it for quite a while, we pray that... Um, that exploration will be deeply fruitful, that we'll come to a new and greater appreciation of just how precious your gospel is, that we might actually respond to it with the obedience of faith. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Now, when you um, start going to college, you decide you're going to go off into, into ministry, you, you get an interviewed by the principal. And so I, a number of years ago, it would have been in 19, late 90s, I, I went and I had an interview with the then principal, Peter Jensen, and uh, amongst other things that he asked me was, all right, well, if you were going to, if I was not a Christian person and you were going to tell me what the gospel was, what would that be? What would you tell me? I thought, oh, okay, this is the tell me the gospel question. And, and so I thought, well, I'd been trained in using a, a thing called Two Ways to Live, and, and Peter Jensen's brother wrote it. And so I thought, I'm not going to, I'm not going to use that in an interview with Peter Jensen. So I just fluffed around, right? And I just kind of pulled it all together. And then I finished what I'd said with basically the phrase, well, so I guess that's the gospel in a nutshell. And, um, and Peter Jensen sort of nodded and he smiled and he said, so now I've got a question for you. Tell me, is, is sin in the nutshell? I'd somehow managed to explain the gospel and not even mention sin. What do you reckon? Is sin in the nutshell? Is sin an important part of the gospel message? How important a part of the gospel message is it? Would it really matter if we just kind of let it slide and just got on with the other good stuff? Well, the Bible says, yeah, it does matter. It really does matter. In fact, if you leave sin out or even minimise it, you end up preaching a different gospel to the one that's in the Bible, based around a different God who sent a Jesus with a different mission to the one the real Jesus had and requires a different response from the people that will hear that message. So, yeah, it does matter. Uh, let, let me... Um, give a couple of examples of what I mean. Let me give some alternate Gospels that you might hear um, Christians preach around the place. How about this one? Look, listen, yeah, look, sin is bad, sure, but just don't worry about it. Jesus has dealt with that, right? Nothing you need to concern yourself about. The greatest problem with sin is that you're actually not living up to your potential. The good news is God's actually got a better way for you than the way you're living. Sin, sin means just you're not living your best life. Jesus came to show you what the better life is, a far more successful and happy and positive life. That's the good news that I've come to bring you. So really, you don't so much proclaim the gospel, you sell it. All right, You don't need to get all negative and talk about sin. Just keep telling them how wonderful the Christian life is. Show people that their way is not as good as God's way, and then encourage them to change teams and get over to something that's far better. How about this one? Jesus didn't die on the cross to receive some kind of punishment for sin. Yuck. No, God's not angry. 
Jesus died to show you how important you are. Jesus' ministry and his death is this just absolutely wonderful affirmation that regardless of our failings and our weaknesses and our brokennesses and our insecurities, God loves you. It's not about right or wrong. It's about compassion and affirmation and empowerment. So you do you and you be you. And if anyone says otherwise, they're a judgmental jerk. The good news of the gospel is that you really matter and that you've got a God that's on your side no matter what. Now, can I say there are elements of truth in both of those examples, but neither is the biblical gospel. Each presents a gospel that is not nearly as good as the true one. And they fall short and they fall dangerously short because they underplay the seriousness of sin. The truth about sin, you see, raises the stakes heightens the urgency and reveals the amazing power of the gospel. Now, between now and Christmas, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans. Actually, we're going to be looking at half the book of Romans. Um, This is the place where more than anywhere else, Paul really explores what the good news about Jesus Christ is and what the major implications of it are. But before he gets to the good news of how Jesus saves us, Paul really does a deep dive into sin and why it really matters. And that is what we're going to look at in this short series um, over the school holidays. But before we kick into the issue of sin too deeply in the coming two weeks, today we're going to look at the beginning, the very beginning of the book of Romans. And we're going to see three things about the gospel in these verses. We're going to see, first of all, that it really is a really, really big deal. Secondly, we're going to see that the gospel shapes the desires of those who've been transformed by it. And third, we're going to see that it's nothing less, nothing less than the power of God to save whoever would believe it. But first, let me give you a very brief background. If you want a bigger one, come on Monday night, okay, to the intro night. But let me give you a very brief background to the book of Romans. It was written in the mid-50s of the first century um, and probably written from Corinth towards the end of Paul's third missionary journey. Now, Rome, as you probably did know, was the largest city in the Roman Empire and possibly the known world. The church in Rome consisted of a number of house churches. You can read about some of those in Romans 15 and 16. And though it was likely dominated by Jewish Christians when it began, um, the Emperor Claudius in the late 40s expelled all the Jews from Rome because the Jews were fighting with those Jews who had become Christians. And so he says, well, if you want to fight so much, you can do it somewhere else. And so he booted them all out. And so now the church in Rome, it has got some Jews that have come back, but it is majority Gentile, that is non-Jewish. And a key thing to note is that Paul didn't plant the church there and nor, as we're going to soon see, did he have the opportunity yet to visit them. Romans is Paul's longest letter and it's also got his longest introduction. And it becomes very clear from that long introduction what Paul really wants to talk about. Let's have a look, first of all, at Paul's introduction of himself. Look at verse 1. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, we're not left wondering what Paul understands his job to be or how seriously he takes it. He tells them who his boss is. I'm a servant, literally a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, this isn't necessarily Paul saying, I am but a worm, you know, and, and, and making himself sort of a nothing. Um, actually, quite the opposite. You know, a third of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And they could be as low and despised as gladiators, or they could have esteemed and important jobs as high-ranking officials to the empire's most high-ranking people. So calling yourself someone's slave doesn't so much draw attention to you being a nobody, it's drawing attention to who you're the slave of. Some slaves you took very seriously. It's all about who you were a slave to. And Paul is saying, I am a slave of the Messiah, Jesus. The King of Kings is my boss. And he's called me to be an apostle. Now again, the word called here is a, is a pretty important word. Paul uses it three times in this introduction. And it carries the sense of, of being appointed to a, a, a privileged function. Paul's master, Jesus, the King of Kings, has appointed him to carry out a function and that is to be sent into his world as his messenger. That's what an apostle is. And the last part, set apart for the gospel of God. Now again, that word there, set apart, is quite a strong one. It's the same word that Jesus uses for the separation that occurs occurs at the last judgment. It's the same word he uses when he talks in the parable of the sheep and the goats, how they were separated and divided. Paul is saying, I have been pulled out of the lineup, so to speak. I've been hived off by Jesus himself in order to be sent into the world for the express purpose of proclaiming the good news of God. And think about what's included in that last phrase there, the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. Now, elsewhere, some, Paul sometimes refers to it as being my gospel, but he's not doing that here. Because it might be the gospel preachers, but it's not his message. What we're going to hear over the next few months is not going to be Paul's take on the gospel, but the good news that God himself announces. In other words, this is the authoritative, true gospel and you measure other gospels as to whether they conform to this one because this is God's gospel. Well, Paul hasn't finished his sentence. It tends to take a while to do that. And so he then expands on what this good news is, what this gospel of God concerns. So have a look at verse 2 and 3. It is the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. The gospel of God isn't something new. It's the good news that God has been forecasting that he would be bringing about throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it's, it's more than forecasting. Because forecasting is about probability, isn't it? So if you, uh, this is a bit nerdy of me, but I every now and then, actually I, every year, check out the US National Hurricane Centre and look at their prognosis for the upcoming hurricane season. Now, you can see on this screen there, this is from last night, all right, 
and it will show you where a possible storm is developing and how it's going to grow. And um, it will map out the probable path of a hurricane. It'll give advanced warnings of the areas that they might strike. It's based on their best modelling and it's kind of a guide. It's not certainty. So if you have a look on that that slide, if you, if you watch up this, this is a hurricane that's on its way to hit somewhere in Florida. That's what a forecast is doing. Well, at least you know it's not going to be Alabama, right? It's going to hit, hit Florida somewhere. But a promise is different. The good news that Paul has been sent to preach is the fulfilment of something God has promised through his prophets that he would bring about. A promise that it was there to be seen if you go and look over it throughout the scriptures, as we've just done, haven't we? As we've looked at the second half of Genesis and you just see the gospel popping out all over the place. And it's a gospel that even in Genesis you can see is concerning God's own son. And so the good news is a message about a who. It's not a what. Well, let's keep going. What is the good news about God's long-promised son? Well, Paul points out two things. First, that the son is the one who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. That literally reads, the one born from the seed of David according to the flesh. As far as his mortal form, in other words, is concerned, he was born of the line of King David, of the tribe of Judah, Genesis. Now, that's important because that is the line through which the promised Messiah would come. But the second part of what Paul says is bigger, because this is not David's son that we're talking about, verse 4, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So when he was born, he was David's son. But after he had risen from the dead, it is declared who he really is. Through the work of God's Holy Spirit, his true identity was powerfully declared to the universe. The gospel is, in effect, God's declaration to the world, this is my son. And if he's God's son in power, then who must he be to us? Well, you can sum up who the good news is about in four words, as Paul does at the end of verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, if the good news concerns Jesus, then what was the task that Jesus gave Paul? Well, it's a big one, verse 5 and 6. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, in the original language, that phrase, the obedience that comes from faith, is simply the obedience of faith. Now, the NIV's understanding of that phrase suggests that Paul received grace and apostleship in order to produce among the Gentiles the obedience that faith brings about. Now, that is a possibility, and it is certainly true that faith does and should generate obedience. But I don't think that that's what Paul is saying here. I want to suggest another alternative. Paul has been set apart as an apostle of Jesus Christ to proclaim the good news about him. And so how should we respond to God's 
good news by believing it, by having faith in it. The obedience Paul is speaking of is faith itself. Faith in Jesus is how we obey the gospel. And when the nations trust that Jesus Christ is Lord, then they will be giving him the honour due to his name. And notice that language in verse 6. You are also called to belong to Jesus Christ. See, they are appointed to the great privilege of being his people too. So guess what? Six verses in, and that's just Paul introducing himself and his mission. What does that tell you, though? What does such a big intro tell you? Well, certainly it tells you how extraordinarily seriously Paul sees his commission as an apostle. This gospel that he is charged with proclaiming is a big, big deal. And that is continued as he addresses them in verse 7. Look at this. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. These Romans are God's beloved. These Romans are called to be holy. And he brings them grace and peace from the God whose gospel it is and from Jesus Christ, his master, the one whom the gospel is about. Now, before we move on, let's process this a bit. Uh, What do we make of this super long introduction? If I was writing an email to someone who I'd not yet met from another church... Um, I might say, Dear Fred and Jane, my name is David Mears, I'm the minister at Christ Church Anglican Gladesville. Probably all you really need to know. And then I'd get on with saying whatever I had to say. But Paul does way more than that, doesn't he? It's almost as if he wants his readers to be in a certain brain space, as it were, as they read the rest of his letter. From the beginning, he wants them to understand that this message, God's gospel of Jesus Christ as Lord, is at the very centre of his calling and their calling too. So the gospel's a big deal. And it's at the centre of the Christian community. First, it's what gives joy. You know, if your passion is seeing people learn the wonders of mathematics... Um, then you rejoice, don't you, when you see young people um, dedicating themselves to the same profession and delighting in it as you do, right? Um, If your passion is health and nutrition, you love hearing about people giving up unhealthy stuff and eating well and exercising and you'll want to know what they're doing and you'll share with them what you're doing. And, And if you've dedicated your life to helping free people from slavery to the drug addiction and and you hear of a successful new initiative that has led many to leave their addictions behind them, you, you rejoice, don't you? Well, we know what Paul is on about. His whole mission, the very purpose that Jesus called him is to see non-Jewish people come to the obedience of faith. And so should it surprise us that the first thing he wants to do is to thank God that that is precisely what has happened to these Roman Christians. Look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported throughout the whole world. Now, can I say that's how wonderful the gospel is? 
I mean, think about it. Paul had very little to do with the faith of the Roman church at this stage. They weren't a testimony to him having done his job well. They weren't the product of his ministry. They weren't a jewel in his ministry crown. But they were Gentiles and Jews who'd heard the good news of Jesus and trusted it. And their faith had been reported all over the world. He's been travelling around Europe and, and Asia and he's going, I've heard of you guys, I've heard about your faith. And so for this, Paul thanks God, as he should, because whose gospel is it? God's. He's the one that brings the faith about. And there are few joys that are greater for a Christian than to hear of putting their people putting their faith in Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? Um, just two weeks ago, I went to the funeral of the father of a friend of mine. Uh, now, of course, it was, it was sad, um, but there was also real joy there because his father was a Christian. But, you know, for most of his life, he wasn't. He died in his late 70s. Um, and for most of those, even into that eighth decade, he didn't believe. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus, actually. And then some life circumstances led him to ask some more questions. And so he met up with my friend, his son, who shared the good news of Jesus with him. Now, we'd all been praying for um, his dad. And, uh, and then one day, I got sent an email, and in that email was a video. Um, and it was a short video clip that my friend had made at the end of the final session that they had looking at the gospel, where his dad says, I want to follow Jesus. And he videoed his dad saying it. And he wanted all of his friends to see it. And over his last years, that man, his, his dad's greatest joy was reading the Bible with his sons. See, my, my friend couldn't wait to report his father's faith. And we couldn't wait to thank God for it. And one of the other great joys a Christian has is being part of a community that shares the same faith that you have, that believes the same good news that you have, and you're sitting next to each other. Paul rejoices in his fellow believers, but he's also eager to do what he can to strengthen their faith in Jesus. He does it in prayer. He would love to do it in person as well. And you can read that in verses 9 to 12. Um, but the task of proclaiming the gospel is never far from Paul's mind. Of course it isn't. After all, he's a slave of Christ Jesus. He's called to be an apostle. He's been set apart for the gospel of God, specifically to bring it to the Gentiles. And Rome is the center of the Gentile world. So where do you think he wants to go? Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. And just to look at his language in verses 14 and 15, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. And that's, that's why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Obligated is there is literally indebted. It's like he feels he has this debt to these non-Jewish people that Paul feels honour bound to pay. Now we might put it this way, I owe it to Greeks and it's literally barbarians, um, which is just a way of saying people that don't speak Greek and aren't from a Greek or Roman culture. But I owe it to Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish. 
I don't care if you're at the top of the tree. I don't care if you're at the bottom of the tree. I don't care whether you're a local or whether you're a foreigner. I can't leave you ignorant of the good news that God has given me to share. You have to hear it. I have to give it to you or I'm stealing from you something that you have a right to hear. I owe it to you. See, the gospel is his driving passion. And what do you make of that and the way he says that? I wonder what his, his readers were thinking as they read this. A bit embarrassing? A bit over the top? Obsessive, perhaps? Yeah, look, we like the gospel too. Yay, right? But you sound a little bit desperate, to be honest. Tone it down, Paul. We get it. Well, I think Paul would say to anyone who told him to tone it down or to dial it back that they didn't actually get it. You see, if the gospel was for the sake of helping people live their best life, well, it doesn't really matter that much if you don't respond to it, does it? You just live less than your best life. You know? Is it um, C's get degrees? If it was for the sake of helping you feel affirmed by God's love, well, if you don't respond, there are other things that people can do or that can make you feel comforted, I guess. No, the gospel is not just a message about Jesus designed to show you something. It's not like a poster that you stick up on a telegraph pole or on a billboard as an FYI. Uh, by the way, you should probably know Jesus Christ is Lord. Now I'll go to the next telegraph pole and put it up. No, no, the gospel is no passive message for people to take or leave. It is a message of the greatest importance that has a deep power of its own. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, these two verses are widely acknowledged to be the thematic verses for the entire book of Romans. And they could comfortably be the subject of their own sermon just by themselves. So I'm not intending to say everything that could be said about them and explore all of the alternatives. Um, what I do want us to notice here is, for lack of a better word, the magnitude of the gospel. Consider what we see in verse 16 there. Paul's not ashamed of it. It's another way of saying, I'm proud of the gospel. It's fantastic. I'm not ashamed of it. He's not going to shrink back from his mission to tell the world about it, no matter what people do, because it's the most important message that there has ever been. The good news about Jesus is the means by which God saves people. It's a message that brings salvation to everyone who believes it, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile. Notice the category, salvation. That's what we're talking about. Not fulfilment, not comfort, not guidance, not affirmation, salvation. This is not a message that you can take or leave. Because if you leave it, you will end up lacking something that is a heck of a lot more serious than a sense of 
lack of fulfillment or lack of purpose. You lack salvation and that really matters. Now that sounds pretty big. But salvation from what? Well, that is what we're going to see very clearly over the next two weeks. But you know that whatever it is we're being saved from can't be a minor problem. And how do we know that? Because this salvation requires nothing less than the power of God to effect it. And we get another hint in verse 17. See, how does it work? How is this gospel, which we already know is about Jesus Christ being Lord, how is it the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes? Let's read it again. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, the substance of this will be explained in detail in the chapters that follow. But the basic summary is this, is is that the gospel, Paul tells us, uncovers something. This is a message that reveals something that is essential for our salvation. What the gospel does and why Paul is not remotely ashamed to preach it is because it does that. You know, kind of if, you, if you're imagining things like one of those game shows where, um, where the prize, you know, you can see the lump underneath a big black, you know, um, curtain or something like that, heavy black cloth and it's this big prize under there and then after an interminably interminably long drum roll the cloth is ripped away, right, with a flourish and a cha-ching of a symbol or something like that and there underneath it is the golden treasure that's been revealed. Well that's what the message regarding the Son of God risen in power from the dead, the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord does. It rips that cover away to show the treasure. It reveals a precious righteousness. The perfect righteousness of God himself, no less. A righteousness that absolutely anyone can access by trusting the gospel about Jesus. In fact, that can only be accessed by trusting the gospel of Jesus. Because it's from faith, it's to faith. It's by faith from first to last, beginning at the end, it's about faith. And this righteousness is key to living, to life itself. The righteous will live by faith. Now, as we saw in the Isaiah reading, the coming of God's righteousness was viewed by the prophet as being a tremendous message of hope for the world. But let's be honest. What was your instinctive reaction to the great reveal of the gospel that God had promised from long ago being the gift of righteousness? Be honest, what what do you think of that? Did it feel a little bit anticlimactic? Wouldn't it be flashier if the gospel revealed... Ta-da, eternal life or um, love that can never be taken away from you or true purpose and meaning. Ta-da. But it doesn't. 
Now, those, those realities will actually come about. They'll come about as a consequence of this one. The reveal itself is righteousness, God's righteousness. Is receiving the righteousness of God something that you have to remind yourself that you probably should think is magnificent? Almost as if you feel like righteousness was something, I don't know, that you kind of already had. You see, this question exposes our human tendency to just think we're pretty okay. That's why people tone down the gospel message all the time. If the thought of being given God's righteousness through the gospel of Jesus feels anticlimactic, rather than being the most amazing message that you have ever heard, then you either don't know or maybe have lost sight of how truly deadly and foul our sin, your sin, your lack of righteousness really is. And if you or I are ashamed to proclaim such a gospel, then we don't appreciate just how deadly a predicament the people that we're ashamed to tell the gospel to are in. Just think about what we've heard. Over 17 verses we've been given hints that there is something desperately pressing and important about this gospel message. We've read about God's long planning and, and revealing it throughout the Old Testament. You've got the fact that it involves God's Son having to rise from death, that, that the language of being called and appointed to belong to Jesus or to preach his message. You're calling about the obedience of faith, Paul's overwhelming sense of obligation to the Gentiles, the need for God's power to bring this about, that it's got to be from faith from first to last, almost as if there's nothing that you can do apart from trust this. That's how desperate it is. You're just clinging to this truth. And the fact that it's a message of salvation for Jew and Gentile, in other words, for everyone, it's universal in, in, in its application and its promise. See, the gospel is so desperately needed because sin is so desperately bad, which means being granted God's righteousness is such mind-blowingly good news. So let me um, finish with two questions for us to ponder. And especially to ponder as we, as we think about the, the coming weeks, especially the next two, I think. Uh, I want us to reflect upon let's, what we've seen about Paul's attitude to the gospel here. First, his personal conviction about it. And secondly, his eagerness to let others know about it. How do you feel about the gospel by comparison with Paul? They both personally and publicly, right now. It probably felt differently over, over the times, but how, how do you feel about it right now? So let, let's think personally first. If a, if a 10 is a, I deeply cling to and treasure the gospel, I thank God for it every day and cherish it. And a 1 is, TBH, it, it doesn't really impact me. Well, just think about what, where you'd be at the moment on that, in terms of your own personal appreciation of the gospel. 
All right, now let's, let's think publicly. If a 10 is, I'm desperate for people to hear this. And a 1 is, I actually hope no one finds out that I'm a Christian. Uh, where would you place yourself on that as a 1 to 10? Well, this is my prayer. For you, for me. All right? That by the time we get to the second half of Romans 3, you're rocketing up the first scale. That personal appreciation for the righteousness of God revealed in Christ is just something that you go, I'm, I'm bing, eight, bing, bing, nine, bing, 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 ten, right? And by the time we end the end, get to the end of Romans 8, my prayer is that you're going to want everyone to know Jesus Christ as their Lord too. Amen. There's an opportunity now to respond by scanning the QR code, leaving some comments or questions that you may have. And after a short time of silent reflection from today's talk, the music team will invite us up to reflect on the famous words of John 3.16, which is a great expression of the gospel and the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So the music team will lead us after a few minutes.